So we've just finished discussing what are the uh, rights that we and freedoms that we enjoy as a citizen of the United States. Tell me how many of you raise you know, raise your hand. How many of you would say freedom of speech? How many of you would say the right to bear arms? How many of you would say freedom of religion? Those are all common things that we enjoy that not everybody else in the world gets to enjoy. You see, this is the weekend that we reflect on our independence from England, our Revolutionary War, our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights, our Constitution, and its amendments. More than that, we celebrate in some unique ways. We have huge firework displays. We have barbecues, parades, uh, and we have a three-day weekend. And all of these are in celebration of our uh, struggle for independence, which we won. The irony of this weekend is where we are in our studies in Ephesians. How do you celebrate your subjection and submission as well as your freedom on the same weekend? Tell me, when it comes to submission to others, what food do you eat? What festivals do you attend? How do you celebrate submission to God and submission to others? There's no holiday, no weekend, no proclamation that gathers and unifies people together to declare, hey, let's hear it for our servanthood. Three cheers for a voluntary slavery. We are focusing on a letter that is nearly 2,000 years old, but still talks about the current events. And it is so important that we understand that this letter is really divided into two halves. The first half of the letter, the first three chapters, it is all about God and what he's done. It is bragging on God and what he's done for the believer. And so we use these terms such as grace, such as predestination, such as salvation, such as being filled with the Holy Spirit. We use these terms and understand it's all about God. But the second half is all about our response to this God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you do not get the first half, then the second half will seem like rules. It'll seem like slavery. It'll seem like bad, uh, bad religion. But if you do get how the two halves fit together, it'll be a light going on in your brain. It'll be like connecting the dots on those old puzzles. We understand what God has done for us. And then we respond in thankfulness for, uh, to this point, uh, the focus has been on how we live for God and how our relationships in the church show that we are living for God. Now, that probably means that you are thinking of these relationships less than five hours a week. But now we turn to your family and to your work relationships. We're talking of 10, 20, 30 hours a week that you spend with these people. So let's be honest. Now I'm meddling into your private life. And it begins with marriage. And like every other married couple that you see, marriage can be a marvel or a misery, and sometimes something in between, or some, sometimes it goes from one to the other within a period of days. For these young Christians in that pagan city, Paul now describes marriage for followers of Jesus. 
and how to make it a marvel in their lives. And these converts from idolatry have never heard anything like it before. And if you were a recent follower of Jesus, maybe you have not either. So marriage for Jesus followers, is it a marvel or a mystery? God's design is that it would be marvelous for you. Now, the first, we go back to these same house rules that apply to the church, now apply to married couples, to the home, and to the workplace, as we're going to discover in the next three weeks. And here they are as a reminder. And understand that in the church, as well as in the home, as well as in the workplace, these three rules apply for Christians to get along. And it is because of what God has done for us. Here is how we live for our Heavenly Father in His family. The good news is it's shorter than the Declaration of Independence. It's shorter than our Constitution. There's only three house rules for God's family. Three house rules for your family. House rule number one. Read it out loud. You see that there? Get along. First, we get along with others in the church, but also in our homes. Friends, if you are harboring hard feelings towards other Christians or people in your home, I want you to know that God leaves it to you to make it right between the two of you or whatever group it may involve. The second house rule is contribute. God has given you gifts and planned good works for you to do with these gifts. And the effect is to be his people would be stronger and more useful both in the church and in the world. Do you understand and do you, uh, you know, has God shown you what your contributions are? It's not just money, but it's ways in which he has specifically gifted you. And are you using that ability? And house rule number three, read it out loud there, grow up. Don't be childish, but mature. That means learning from God and his people so your attitudes and your actions would continually look more like those of Jesus. Now, we are given one verse as we begin this section that acts as a hinge between the church and the home. And it is this from Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that is a summary statement of what we've been reading before. That in the church we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. But it is also a summary statement for where we're going in verse 22 and beyond. That we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the church we submit to one another. And in the home we submit to one another. The term that we use is mutual submission, and it's used in the church, and it's applied in the home. Submission is never meant to be a one-way street. You should experience some submitting to you, and you should also experience you submitting to others. However, let's be honest. Most often, we only keep count of when we are submitting to others because it makes us feel good that we're more, more obedient than they are. Ultimately, getting our way does not matter. And we submit, as it says here, out of love or reverence for Jesus. Out of love and reverence for Jesus. This is not because 
the person we submit to has uh, a, a superior uh, abilities to us and we must learn from that person. Nor is it out of a structure of authority. You see, when both husbands and wives and people in the church follow Jesus, then mutual submission occurs and that is beautiful because it reveals and duplicates Jesus the Son submitting to the Heavenly Father. So to better grasp this mutual submission, which is spiritual, not just human, but spiritual, let's expose two myths and uh, that some of us assume about marriage. So why is it that Christians need to change their attitudes, especially in our Western society, uh, <clears throat> Why is it that mutual submission often comes so hard? Well, we live by two myths. The first is this, that, uh, and this can be spiritualized, that there's just one perfect mate for each person. When we say that, we're saying that our job is to find that mate, and when you find that mate, you will naturally live happily ever after, just like all the fairy tales we used to read. This myth has been used by many who say, well, I married the first time poorly, but now I have found my soulmate, the one that God always intended for me to discover. And as I discovered this person, I am now finding true happiness. Now, understand that that argument is a relatively new one because this whole idea of falling in love and and marrying because we fall in love, is an idea that's less than 200 years old. Yes, there are great love stories from the past, but in general, marriages were arranged. And they were arranged so your mate was found for you. So the real issue is not finding your mate, and the real issue is not your matchmaker finding your soulmate. The issue is becoming a good mate, both husbands and wives. The issue is what is the work God is doing in you so that your marriage can be a marvel, not a misery. There's a second myth that we tend to to live with, and that is this, and also used sometimes in the church. Husbands lead and wives follow. That is a relationship based on authority, not on reverence for Jesus. This passage is not one of authority, but of submission, mutual, willing submission to one another. To be looking at the other's needs as more important than yours. Therefore, like Jesus, you are laying aside your needs so that you can meet the needs of your partner. So, mutual submission is will look different for the husband and the wife, but it's not how the husband leads, for example. It really is how the husband loves. So with these two myths exposed as faulty, let's look at the two key words for a marvelous marriage. One word for each spouse and try to figure out why they are not given the same word. Here's the first word, and we find it at the end of our passage. Let me just take time now to read this whole passage. It begins with this. Wives, and I'm reading the NIV here, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Then it goes to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery that I am talking about, Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So that last, that first word is given to the wives, and it is this word respect. Now, I want you to know, because some of you struggle with this word, that it's not uh, submit so much as it is respect. And understand that as you read in verse 21, where it says mutual submission to one another, it never does say wives submit to your husbands. It just says wives to your husbands, and it says it two or three times. In other words, wives to your husbands. This is how mutual submission looks in the home. Wives to your husbands. As to the Lord. Meaning, you know what submission is like to Jesus. In some other way, you are submitting also to husbands. Now, all Christians submit to other Christians and married married Christian women to their husbands like to other Christians. So just like you find yourself in submission to other Christians in the previous part of this passage, so also to your husbands in the home. Now, there are two more verses that compare the church's relationship to Jesus as its head and Savior to a wife's submission to her husband. This is the general order of human relationships. Similar to those that we find in retail, where the customer is always right, or similar to those that we find in the military. Here's the idea. In retail, the phrase is, the customer is always, that's right. The customer is always right. That doesn't mean the customer is right, but that's how you treat the customer. Or in the military, can you imagine what it would be like for you to go to your commanding officer and just say, you'd like a transfer? You'd like to transfer from this drill sergeant to this other drill sergeant because you like the other one more. What sort of a response would you get from your commanding officer? Here's the idea. You took the job. You do not choose who you report to. So this passage then ends with that new word where it instructs the wife to respect. Respect comes from the Greek word to fear, but here not Uh, dread or fear for your life that you're going to die or be injured, 
but in this case, a, a sense of reverence. Not a worship of your husband, but instead a sense of reverence. Now, you can disagree. Hopefully, you do talk through your disagreements. Women, you are not to be doormats. But many of you have made that wonderful discovery. As one social scientist has stated, that men can live without love from their wives, but they will battle those who disrespect them. And that is why respect, both face-to-face and behind your husband's back, is so essential. You may say nothing about your husband uh, uh, out of respect, but please don't denigrate him to others, such as the prayer groups you're in where you just want to make sure that, that you're being prayed for because your husband is such a louse. And everybody will feel, feel sympathy and pray to God that, that God will change your husband because you can't. Or in a Bible study where you're reading a passage like this or in your social contacts. You see, you, you behind your husband's back are telling others why you do not respect him. And Peter speaks to a respect that is so effective for a Christian wife that even a husband who does not believe will place his trust in Christ because Jesus is so genuine in your life. You find that in 1 Peter chapter 3. So there are three verses about submission and one half of a verse about respect. That is the, uh, the outline that's given for Christian wives. Now compare that woman to what is asked of your husbands. You were asked to respect. He is asked to love. And it says this. However, each one of you husbands must love his wife as he loves himself. The husband must love the wife because... And the model is the way that he will take care of himself. He's to take care of his wife. Now, here is the scandal that Christianity brought to this ancient town of Ephesus. In the ancient world, nobody marries for love. And the love talked about here is not the romantic love that we base our culture on, but the self-sacrificing love that we find best described in Jesus. You see, the the love that our culture operates on is the love of romance. In the Greek, this term was eros. And friends, we are wired for eros. It's not a bad thing. Our hormones, our brains, our bodies are created by God for eros. It is the physically attracting and bonding love that is so important in in, in courtship. It is the affection that we find in holding hands, kissing. And you remember this one? Well, we just found ourselves, while we were dating, talking about everything all night long. There was nothing that we wouldn't talk about. That is eros. And and it includes and, and is designed to be making love so that we can have children. It all leads to eros, leads to that. In our world, anyone who marries without feeling eros to the partner is either an idiot or a gold digger. This is God's doing in our creation. So we do not deny it, but we thank God for it. 
Both male and female do eros by nature. Yet we know that eros loves comes and goes. It is very picky. It is fickle. What you loved two weeks ago, you may detest this morning. Our culture is based on eros. And it both attracts us, but it also repels us. And what happens when that eros, that feeling, that uh, physical attraction and, and emotional attraction leaves us? Well, we have a whole series of, of popular singers who talked about love that is lost, both male and female. But let me just use uh, three examples. In the 1990s, Tina Turner came out with this song as she broke up with Ike. Uh, and this is, this is what this song is. What's love, Eros, got to do with it, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Reminds me of that song, um, from, uh, you know, about 60 years ago from the uh, musical uh, South Pacific, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. And if you want to have a song written about you as a louse, can I just say, men, date Taylor Swift for about two months, and you might be the subject of her next album. No, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. And the most classy act of Eros Gone Bad is Adele, the English singer, because she comes out with three songs and two different albums. We could have had it all as she sits on this chair in a black dress, uh, mourning about how close they got to eternal love. But it was followed by her walking across a, a, a bridge on a dreary day, saying, even though we're broken up, broken up, I still wish you well. You are not mine. Things went bad. But I don't want to kill you. I don't want you dead. I wish you well. And finally, she comes out with this new album where she goes, hello from the other side, making a, a new connection to this same person. How are things going after all this time? This is not what a man's submission to his wife is. A man's submission to his wife is agape love, which we learn from Jesus, where wives have three verses and this one summary word, respect, thrown in. Men, you have nine verses and agape love thrown in six times. And the comparison is between your love for your wife and Jesus' love for his church. That's a high bar. That one's hard to cross or to jump over because it says of Jesus, he purified his church. He cleansed his church. He perfected his church. He made his church radiant like a bride. He, and he made his church holy and blameless. And he did this through the agape act of his sacrifice, laying, that, laying aside his rights and considering your needs, the church, more important than his. He submitted mutually and willingly and joyfully to his church by dying for her. So husbands... Sometimes we get the wrong idea what agape love is. We may think it's achievement because we say, we do all this for you. 
and, and, and in our careers and the financial rewards that come with our careers are not dying for your wife. They're not necessarily bad, but they're not agape. Buying all she needs so she would be a better trophy wife. That's not bad thing to do. But is she a trophy wife because she makes you look good? Or you want to make her look good because she is such a treasure? Here's agape love. Telling her how much she means to you. Choosing maybe a more expensive form of education so your children might be, uh, you know, uh, uh, might have a better chance in life. In other words, you lay aside your money so that others get the advantage of what you've earned. More than that, by giving her time off, that might be far better as you take the role of being Mr. Mom for a while and she gets a little time to herself. That might be more agape love. And if you want a real picture of agape love, just go to John 13. Again, the picture of agape love is Jesus. And Jesus loves his church and his disciples so much that he takes up a towel and a basin and washes their feet. Even the feet of Judas who would betray him. You see, your love, you love your wives when you sense that maybe she does not have much love for you. And when she does not maybe have much love for you, why don't you find out what you did? Why don't you make a fool of yourself and go to your wife and say, what did I do? Because I really don't know. Her eyes might roll. She might respond with something like, well, if you don't know, how, how do you expect me to tell you? And you just claim ignorance. You claim, you know, you just don't have a brain. You just don't know what it's like uh, and, and what you did wrong. And then after she tells you what you did wrong, maybe for the 50th time, then you be quiet and you repeat it. And then after even a little more time of silence, you say you're sorry. Then after even a little more time after that, you say you'll try to do better next time. And then after that, you say, I give you permission to prompt me that I'm going into this mode next time. And then and only then can you watch the rest of the Bronco game. That is agape love on a human level. Not perfect, but doing better than most men do naturally. And if you need help here, I want you to know I've got a couple of resources that have really helped me. The first is what I call Marriage 101. It is a book called The Five Love Languages. It helps me discover what helps, what makes my wife feel loved and what makes my wife feel respected. And, and it tells me how to do it. Now, for most wives, they are searching for quality time. Not time in which you have your cell phone sitting at a table. And you're doing more of your emails and sports course than you are giving her the attention she needs. That's Marriage 101. The more graduate level is a book called Love and Respect, based on this passage, but it's done in a more secular way. This is the most descriptive, thorough book on marriage and, and what, is, what is called for from a husband and a wife. 
Now, when it gets down to the hard, cold reality, understand it's not who you marry that makes life and marriage a marvel or a misery. It's not who you marry. I believe you can be happy and have a marvelous marriage with all sorts of people, not just one. I don't believe there's only one soulmate for you. But really, it's not who you marry, but it's how you do marriage that makes it a marvel or a misery. How each of us do marriage. And for each Christian, the motivation and the model come from the example of Jesus himself and what he has done for you. You know what that means. The more influence that Jesus Christ has over you, the more of a marvel your marriage will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you that marriage is not just about finding a mate. But thank you that marriage is producing more of Jesus in me. Thank you that the plan that you gave us of leaving our parents and cleaving to our partners and becoming one together is nothing new. It starts way back in Genesis. And Father, I'm aware that because there's never been two perfect people married to each other, that there's relationships even here today that need healing, that need some direction for the troubles they're facing, that are under stress. Marriage, marriages that maybe are giving far too much attention to the children and not enough attention to each other. Marriages that need some cultivating. Marriages that need some renewal. Marriages where they just start with these two words. Respect and love. There will be a mutual submission that not only make their marriage a marvel, but it will be seen by the world that contacts these marriages. And they'll be more eager and more open to God touching their lives too. Lord, make marvelous marriages at Bergen Park Church. Day by day, we're all works in progress. But may you use the marriages in our homes to bring greater influence to your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.